You know, we hear everything, but we rarely listen. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Sound, it's all about listening, really not about truth. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and the symphonic textures of everyday life. We listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week. Sometimes I just went off on my own because I wanted to hear the forest. The forest is never quiet. At Third Coast, we like to think we have pretty finely tuned ears. But then along comes someone like Tim Hinman, a man who blows the rest of us out of the water. He approaches sound like a maestro attacks a score, obsessively, meticulously, and with wild imagination. Just a bit of background. Tim is a British producer and sound designer living in Denmark, where he produces the podcast Third Ear, which won the first ever Third Coast Best Foreign Language Award in 2016. He also hosts the English-language podcast Sound Matters. Tim started his career in film, where soundtracks are dense and layered, and as you'll hear, his radio work follows suit. Today on ReSound, grab some earbuds, because you'll hear things that come in one ear and never leave. Like the ice melting in the Antarctic Sea, an Ethiopian cacophony of metal on metal, and a singer in search of the sounds of her childhood in the Swedish forest. But we'll start where Tim started, at the movies. Here is Soundtracks of Our Lives. Well, what's it about, you may be asking? Soundtrack of whose life? Well, maybe your life, actually. It's all about listening, this program. It's also a good idea to listen to it with a decent pair of headphones on if you've got the chance. Be not feared. The aisle is full of noises. Now, we only have five senses, but it seems that most of us are pretty lazy when it comes to using our ears. Now you, because you're listening to this program, are probably not the worst offenders, but still, there's plenty of things you haven't noticed yet. And in this program, you're going to open your ears wider than you ever have before, I hope. Sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears. And sometimes voices. It's a program for and about sound nerds, I suppose you might say. And if you're not a sound nerd, well, you might be after the next hour or so of third year. I cry to dream again. We're going to travel around the world in this show. We're going to meet a Danish sound artist, Jakob Kierkegaard, who's been in Ethiopia recording sounds that none of us have ever heard before. If you want to experience these sounds, you just have to open your ears and do the listening. We're going all the way from the North to the South Pole, 
with British nature sound recordist and composer Chris Watson. I'm a great supporter of the cliche that radio is better than television because the pictures are better, you know, because it fires our imagination. You don't need an image. We're going into the deep, dark forest of Sweden with musician and singer Kirstina Stuber-Talbjerg, looking for the sound of her childhood. Sometimes I just went off on my own because I wanted to hear the forest. I was a little bit afraid to get lost. And we go into a music studio in Chicago to meet a man who's produced over 2,000 records, music records, Steve Albini. I kind of decided how I was going to spend the next 20 or 30 years of my life. I'm going to be here pretty much every day, making a record pretty much every day. There's really no way around it. As with any journey, and as with any third-year program, we have to start somewhere. And we're going to start right here, with a simple demonstration of how sound affects the way you think and perceive. And we're going to do it by going to the movies, with this man, Peter Albrechtson. My name is Peter Albrechtson. I'm a sound designer for movies. I work with the most invisible part of a very visible medium. When you talk about sound, I really love that there's no one who's really... No one has the exact truth about how sound works. And sound, it's all about listening and really not about truth. Making sound for film isn't easy. It's complicated. It's a big <laughs> setup to do these films because there's so many layers and you control everything, which is something I really love about doing sound for movies. I mean, we're in so many environments where we are unable to control anything. There's so many noises in our everyday life. There's so many sounds surrounding us all the time and when you walk into a cinema mostly they're quite quiet and soundproof and you actually are able to create a sonic world inside that room which people will enter and be part of and be very open and be very interested in feeling something emotionally and getting a story told it should be a little bit of a sonic adventure in a way. Like you should be surprised and amazed and moved, hopefully. Now ask yourself, are you feeling ready to be engaged, to feel something and to get a story told? Of course you are. Then here comes a spoiler of a sort. You're about to find out that every movie you ever saw Every image you felt was so powerful, every emotion you ever felt in the cinema was, largely, the result of some kind of manipulation of your senses. And a lot of the real work being done in making you think and feel what the film director wants you to think and feel is done by, you guessed it, a careful and considered use of sound. So now, with the help of Peter Albrechtson, we're going to walk you through it. We're going to show you how it's done. All we need is a very simple setup. Let's assume, for example, that Peter is sitting in a cafe in Copenhagen. If right now I was sitting in a cafe... And... Action! 
and this was supposed to be a very intimate conversation then usually I would take like very much of the background sounds away so you wouldn't hear the cars in the street you wouldn't hear the, the sounds of the kitchen you wouldn't hear the other people in the restaurant try to focus in on just hearing the small sound of the the spoon in the cup and maybe just all these tiny sounds and maybe we can even whisper instead of talking but we could also do the opposite thing and hearing like there could be some very loud background music and all kinds of sounds from the kitchen the, the door slamming you hear the doorbell maybe or, and then we have to almost yell to each other and talk really loudly the situation becomes very stressful a cafe would be very different if, a, if it was a jazz piece that was playing instead of a, a techno piece Neil Young song was playing. Uh, that would make it very different as to if it was like an easy listening song playing. But of course you could also have a piece of score, I mean a piece of film music that was written specifically for the scene. film set, when the film is being shot, all you can actually hear is the sound of the main actors acting. There's also the occasional sound of the film director shouting orders and off-camera sounds like the buzzing of lights, cameras, generators, things like that. And only by adding layer on layer of sound after the film is edited does it become realistic. And then it starts to make you believe in the unrealistic setup. If it sounds a certain way, loud, quiet, dramatic, peaceful, it's all done on purpose. So a simple cafe scene can become whatever we want it to be. Now try and close your eyes. What kind of movie do you think you're seeing now? I think you could turn the scene into something that's like a thriller or a, a horror film, but it would be probably something that's a bit more subliminal. Be not feared. There's this uh, great American sound designer, Randy Tum, who said that 
If you want to create a, a scary or dark atmosphere in film, you can use pretty much all the sounds in the world and you can make them dark and evil. But if you want to create something very beautiful, then you can only use one sound. It's birds singing. Of course, that's a joke. Uh, but uh, but uh, at the same time, I, I kind of see what he means. There's something about abstract sounds that create this world where we're um, unsure exactly where we are in a way. And I find that that's a really, really interesting place. You can see some images which look like something you know, but then if, for example, like David Lynch creates these room tones which are very dark, weird drones, then suddenly something that looks like a cafe becomes a very dark, menacing place. Each sound you put into a film tells a story. For me it's really important to collect sounds and be very curious and explore the world for sounds for each new film. You never get finished recording sound, you never get finished exploring sound. It's just an ongoing adventure, which is amazing. You never get finished with sounds. There's always something new to discover. With that, it's time to move on to the next bit. Now, that music you can hear in the background is the music from Twin Peaks. It's composed by Angelo Bartolomenti and David Lynch, the film director who Peter mentioned earlier. The reason it's there right now is because it gives me a perfect opportunity to segue between the last bit and the next one, which features sound artist Jakob Kierkegaard. I'm Jakob Kierkegaard. Jakob lives in Berlin normally, but he's been listening to things all over the world for years, unusual things that most people never consider listening to. Nuclear power stations, empty rooms, even the sound of his own ears. But recently he's been listening to a whole country. No, I've been listening to uh, Ethiopia. And while he was in Ethiopia, he found himself out in the bush at night without a great deal to do. I was lying out there in the bush in the middle of nowhere watching Twin Peaks. I remember the giant speaking to Agent Cooper in a dream. And he said, The owls are not what they seem. The owls are not what they seem. Well, the sounds are not what they seem, are they? It's all about our perception. This is all I'm permitted to say. documentaries of this type, I'm supposed to come in at this point with a voiceover that says, the journey continues. 
Ethiopia started out for me as a kind of thing that popped up in my consciousness when I heard the music from there a long time ago. The tracks from Ethiopia just stood out. didn't sound like anything else and it always intrigued me how can I as a foreigner listen to this place how can I experience what they are experiencing I ended up uh, going there As soon as you arrive in Addis, you get out of the airport, you are met with this beautiful smell in the air. It smells very good. The temperature is just perfect. It's not too hot, not too cold. The vibe is amazing. It's just, uh, you're in Africa, but you are also not in Africa because Ethiopia is just uh, an alien place. How can I really dive into to the sound of Ethiopia? Because I will hear the sound of, of Ethiopia totally differently from, from them. They know their sounds. I don't know any of the sounds. So I might point out some sounds that I find interesting and say, Whoa, what's that sound? A sound that they wouldn't even pay attention to anymore. Part of the biggest outdoor market in Africa. It's called Makato. It's in the middle of the capital, Addis Ababa. And deep inside this market, you have a sort of recycling area. And we just went in there, and I thought, holy moly. You walk in, and you hear this, like, drumming. And you get closer. And as closer you get into this place, like a labyrinth, these sounds just start to surround you. The sound of drumming Jakob could hear was the sound of hundreds of men beating with hammers on oil drums, transforming and recycling the metal into useful objects. Beating on them like crazy with their hammers. It's possibly the noisiest place on the planet. some uh, headphones that blocked the outer sounds quite well but at some point I had to try to take them a bit off and I just couldn't it was too loud I have no idea how they do it sometimes they try to put a newspaper in their ears but most of the time they just take it The way I recorded the sounds was to bring my microphone and um, my accelerometer, which is a contact microphone of a kind, like a vibration sensor. And I use that a lot to dive into objects that I record, to listen to them uh, from within. 
I like to compare sounds to human beings. We have a surface as human beings. We have a skin. And we have something in front of our skin. And then we have something behind our skin. And we also, I don't know, resonate or vibrate with our surroundings. I like to think that a sound has a surface. I cannot prove that it has so, but it's something that inspires me to think. The owls are not what they seem. The sounds are not what they seem. You hear them because they travel through the air. But that sound you hear has a source. Metal plate or something. Can you listen to the sound of that metal plate before it manifests itself into air? Sonically, you will be invited into the object. It sounds great. If you want to experience these sounds, you just have to open your ears and do the listening. And if we try to then experience this, or we get the chance to experience it in another way, like zooming in, it will maybe tell us something about that The world is not as it seems. The world may not be as it seems, but we all start somewhere. We actually start hearing before we're born, and we don't stop until we die. And actually, your ears are active all the time, your entire life, even when you're asleep. You don't have earlids like you have eyelids. It's your brain that does the work of filtering out the meaningful stuff and making sense of the world. I think the first time I discovered... Uh that sound can change, that sound isn't necessarily what you think, is actually when my dad gave me a tape a recorder, like an open wheel. Yeah. I'm six years old, and uh, I started talking and playing around. And my dad has these huge headphones and uh, he put them on my head. And he said, listen to this music. And he put these headphones on me. And it was like... Kraftwerk Trans Europa Express Yeah, I never forget this. I was mesmerized. Jakob's cool dad put some headphones on him and changed his life forever. It reminds me of something that happened in my childhood. Not that I'm sure it changed my life all that much. I remember my Uncle Frank, or possibly it was my Uncle Donald, sitting us all down one Sunday afternoon to experience his new hi-fi. And for the purpose, he'd bought a record of steam trains, only steam trains, traveling from left to right 
and occasionally from right to left. I remember sitting there, listening intently to the sound of the steam trains. And as I recall, it made absolutely no impression on me whatsoever. However, that's just me. The sounds that impress on you in your childhood can sometimes stay with you for the rest of your life, even if you don't know it. It's time for the next step in the journey. We're off to Sweden now, in search of the sounds of childhood. We always went to Sweden in the holidays. We were so many kids up there. I had all my cousins and we were always playing. And sometimes I just went off on my own. Because I wanted to hear the forest. There is a place just where the forest begins and the fields stop. There were some big stones and the stones would get warm in the sun. I remember going there to sit on these stones, listening to the forest. Even though there's no wind, the forest is still making the sound. It's never quiet. I was a little bit afraid to get lost. My name is Kirstine Stube Talbjerg. I'm a musician and a singer. And I just released my first solo album. I was the singer and songwriter in a band called Blue Foundation. It's like a 10-hour working day. That's the best. I can work for many hours, you know, without having any breaks. Uh, the best thing for me is to work for some hours and then get into some kind of flow. This is from my uh, childhood. This room has, has been my room for seven or eight years. I have all my gear in here. Uh, and it doesn't have any heating. I have different things that can make noises. So in the winter, it's a very cold place to work. An old electric piano. But I also like this idea of, of not using all kind of presets and creating your own sounds. Also, I'm playing on glasses sometimes. I try out all kind of things. And then I put water in and then I... I, I, you know. I always loved that also as a kid. It's so nice to be asked these questions because you start to remember things. See if I can feel this. Yeah, here's the forest. I was searching for uh, a sound 
yeah, that's pine trees, I think they're called. And I used uh, that forest sound on my album. It's in Småland in Sweden, near my, my grandparents' summer house. You can hear the birds and it's like a blue sky, but you have this sound. It's the same as the sound of the sea, you know, it has the same noisy kind of... Something that's vibrating, alive and still extremely calm. In Sweden the forest is very big. It's an old forest, uh, big trees, big branches, leaves moving in the light. Light and sound is connected. It's uh, kind of sad, but calm. It is, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I needed a sound like that. I think it must be like if you are a painter and uh, of course you make tones, you know, of the colors and you blend your own your colors and uh, I wanted to use my own sounds. I wanted to f hear myself, basically. All the time go back to this feeling of what turns me on, like what sounds are interesting and what sounds makes me feel something and the forest makes me feel something. I have felt that I actually did go into the forest with this record. into the unknown. It can be a pretty unpleasant place to be at night. You can get lost. That was the first part of Soundtracks of Our Lives by sound designer and producer Tim Hinman for his podcast, Third Ear. Coming up in the second half, cheetahs that snore, worse than my husband, and how the iconic music of Twin Peaks, the original series by David Lynch, was crafted. Stay with us.
the problem about being a beginner is that it's going to suck. But the good thing about being a beginner is that you've got all this energy. On the Third Coast Pocket Conference, you'll learn the essential tools for making audio stories from the world's most celebrated radio producers and podcasters. So when I make a piece, I want the world I'm imagining to be so engaging that the listener wants to move there. I want to create an atmosphere that will be sustained from beginning until end. You have to find a way to get in and tell a story that's going to surprise people about something that they already know. The closer, the more intimate, the more immersed you can get in the lives of the people whose stories you're telling, the more powerful those narratives will be. The Third Coast Pocket Conference is where your next great story begins. Listen online at thirdcoastfestival.org or you can subscribe wherever you download your podcasts. And that is the only way that you will get from sucking to not sucking. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we're celebrating the craft of sound design with one of the masters, Tim Hinman, producer of the podcasts Third Ear and Sound Matters. In this show, Tim introduces us to people as obsessive about sound recording as he is, and as a result, we get to hear the North and South Poles, the making of a film soundtrack, and the acoustic properties of bricks. Let's get back to Soundtracks of Our Lives. guessing here, but I don't think you've any idea what this sound is. I'm almost certain you have no idea what kind of sound you're listening to. So here's a clue. It was recorded underwater, off the coast of the Antarctic, and no, it's not a whale. This is the sound of the ice melting in the Antarctic summer. It was recorded by British nature sound recordist Chris Watson. Now you've probably heard quite a lot of Chris Watson's work before without knowing it. Chris Watson has made nature sound recordings for the BBC for years. His sounds are featured in a lot of those big-budget BBC nature documentaries that always seem to be on TV on Sunday afternoons. He's also a sound artist, a musician and a composer. He goes to places most people never go. This is certainly the remotest landscape I've ever been recording in. Uh, my name's Chris Watson and I'm a sound recordist. I'm about 78 degrees south on this deep black tongue of lava and pumice surrounded by ice and snow. Within the last two years I've done as much travelling as 
on well on this planet that I could do because I, I went to um, I went to the South Pole. Well, I've moved away as far as I safely can from any of the construction work and the vehicles and the flapping flags to try and get an atmosphere of what the sound is really like here at the South Pole today. Recording. Five months later, I was at the other end of the planet at the North Pole, staying at the Russian ice camp Barneo and then being flown in this ancient Russian military helicopter the last 60 nautical miles, the last degree from 89 degrees north to 90 degrees north and stood and recorded at the North Pole. This is probably as quiet as it gets on this planet. I met him recently in Copenhagen where we had a walk and a chat and, strangely enough, had a listen. Where we are now, it's great, because you have that very distant skyline, that distant ambient sounds, you know, sirens, the sort of wings of pigeons and gulls overhead, people on the gravel. It's a low dynamic, but it's, a, it's not, certainly not silence, but it's the sort of ambience where you can come... You know, people come here and relax, but they also come here and think. There's probably owls in here as well. We bombard ourselves with, with noise, music and sound all the time. You go into a shop, they're playing music. You ring your bank and they play music down the phone to you. you know, it's everywhere and, it, and it's noise, it's intrusive element into our lives. So we spend most of our time shutting out sounds like that. You know, we hear everything, but we rarely listen. I was given a portable tape recorder by my parents when I was about 11 or 12, a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. And when I'd investigated all the sounds in the house, squeaking doors and the refrigerator, and I realised it had batteries in it so I could take it outside, and that was a real moment of discovery. I really wanted to investigate the creative potential of, of tape recorders as they were then, reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders, because they were great, beautiful sort of sculptural devices, but... I was interested in going out and recording sounds and then working with them, editing, cut and splice, you know, that, that kind of stuff. People used these devices to create music and to compose with, not simply to document sounds. So that got me interested in music concrete and electronic music, and I was in a band for a few years uh, called Cabaret Voltaire. Roots to expression for you know a group of late teenagers in the 1970s was music. We could see a route to picking up instruments and guitars and keyboards and synthesizers and tape recorders in my case and creating music from that. We were all interested in art and art history and the application of the different artistic disciplines. You know, we're fascinated by those as, as a group of people, individuals, college students, basically. 
I left Camera Voltaire, went to work in film sound. That was a way into working creatively with sound outside the music industry. I'm very interested in, in close perspective sound. So I devised a system of using small personal microphones and, and planting those in places and running very long cables back. So I was putting microphones in places where you wouldn't be able to or wouldn't want to put your ears, but then extracting very close perspective sounds. Particularly in the animal world, we would af affect the behaviour. So standing there holding a microphone, nothing's going to come close to you, but planting a microphone, a small, a tiny one, camouflaging it, disguising it, running a cable back and letting everything settle down around the microphone. It's time-consuming, but very rewarding. This is the first sound I ever heard by Chris Watson. It's the sound of a cheetah, sleeping. I realised that some of those sounds, when you heard them from that perspective, it was the images, it was the pictures that became redundant. Because I'm a great supporter of the cliché that radio's better than television because the pictures are better, you know, because it fires our imagination. You don't need an image, a two or even these days three-dimensional image. Sound is powerful enough to overcome that, and our imaginations are far better. Sound, music, strikes directly into our hearts and imagination. A lot of people consume music via, you know, these ghastly MP3 files through tiny headphones downloaded onto the computer and playing out of, you know, speakers a centimetre across. So it's no wonder we don't listen to it because it's not very good. I hear what I do now as music in the same way that when I was 18, 19 working with Cabaret Voltaire, I see no difference, I hear no difference to, to my ears. Chris Watson's nature recordings have come out as CDs several times. In fact, one of his albums called Weather Report, which features only the sound of storms and weather, was featured by the Guardian newspaper in England in their list of 1,000 albums you should hear before you die. And I can only recommend that you do hear it before you die. But perhaps not surprisingly, most of the material on the list is about music. And this man has been involved in recording and producing perhaps more than his fair share of that music. Although, you know, fuck me, I can't remember any names right now. In fact, I can count at least six of his productions that are on the same list of 1,000 albums to hear before you die. You've said that twice. Yeah. That's a metaphor. Maybe, maybe yeah, you want to back off on that metaphor a little bit. You should work on that metaphor. Yeah. What else should I say? Last up today, musician and recording engineer Steve Albini. Rape me again. I'm on the only
Um, Steve's working right now in here, but give me one. Steve was kind enough to show me around his studio. It's an anonymous building in an anonymous neighborhood in Chicago. Hi, I'm Steve. Welcome to our studio. This is the control room. When Steve built the place, he decided that this was the place he was going to spend the rest of his life. When we built the studio, when you walk around a little, you'll see the level of commitment that was brought to bear on building the place. The place was built to last. And I, I kind of, when we did that, I kind of decided how I was going to spend the next 20 or 30 years of my life. I'm going to be here pretty much every day, making a record pretty much every day. There's really no way around it. This is the passage to the other studio, Studio B. Here's kind of a magic point in the studio. This is, you can see there's a physical Steve space. Steve explained to me walls. in some considerable yeah. detail the acoustic properties of some of the bricks used in the construction of his studios, the shape of the rooms, all these things that affect the way things sound when you record them. So this is the live room of Studio B, and it has a very high ceiling, about 30 feet. What is that? It's like 10 meters. Steve's made noise into a way of life. His signature style is noisy, edgy, and dynamic. Steve likes noise. He's quoted once as saying, I like noise. I like big-ass, vicious noise that makes my head spin. I had a kind of a, a epiphany when I came to Chicago, and I was able to see live music you know, up close and personal for the first time. And the bands that were active at that time were a, a, a particularly badass group of bands that turned out to be among the best punk bands. These were like, you know, defining bands for me. Steve Albini is a mechanic of sound. In fact, he even goes to work wearing overalls with the name of his studio, Electric Audio, emblazoned across the back. You got a great uh, outfit on there. This is your, you wear this to work every day? I do. So it's like not, a... it's, uh, what's good about it is that there's a lot of, a lot of pockets for stuff that you, it, when you're making records, you have to carry stuff around a lot. And when you're finished making the record, you don't need to ha have that stuff anymore. So I just always have all, all that crap in my pockets in the, in the jumpsuit. Some of the better known bands that Steve has recorded include Nirvana, that, that too, The Pixies, The Breeders, really Godspeed, Black Emperor, The Stooges, Mogwai, P.J. Harvey, The Manic Street Preachers, Jarvis Cocker, Joanna Newsom, Lowe, and an awful lot more. Set to the sky in a flying spree. You know, if, you're, if you know that you're not going to fuck up your clothes, then you're more likely to crawl around under things and put mics in unusual places or take care of things. Little while later. It's a busy working life in the studio. And it's not getting any easier. Steve works every day the God sends. It's just a very, very difficult business to break even in. So if it's possible to be working on a given day, you should be working. I said you fucking die! It used to cost like a week's salary to get into the studio for, you know, a couple of hours. What? No, no. And now, spending the same amount of money, you can get into a studio for the whole day. I was talking to Kim. It's a natural extension of the sort of democratization of music and technology. I said you fucking die. It becomes easier for people to do things themselves, so they do. 
And because people are comfortable doing things themselves, they have less and less reason to come to a studio and hire professionals. No, no, it didn't have anything to do with anything. You can't really fight it or complain about it. You either adapt or give up. She said, don't touch, anybody touches my stuff. And I said, you fucking die, like that. I was finishing her part for her. If you look at online forums and stuff dedicated to recording, you know what I mean? The posts from people who have been in the business for kind of a long time, a lot of them are very bitter, you know, like, oh, you kids don't know how good you have it, and, you know, no one wants to pay for anything anymore, and, like, they used to make a lot of money, they don't make any money anymore. They, they used to have a lot of respect and a lot of status, and now they don't have any respect or any status, and that's just so childish. Time marches on, you know, things change. It's not easy to run a studio. It's, from an economic standpoint, it's really difficult to make the ends meet. But if you've decided to do that for a living, you can't really complain about it. I can't complain about what I've chosen, to the situation I've chosen to step into, you know? It's like you dress up in a clown suit and go out and you can't get angry that people are laughing at you, you know? You're the one that picked out a fucking clown suit. It's the same with the studio. Like, I'm the guy that decided that I was going to do that big, this, build this big, ridiculous building and spend, like, every penny I could get. I'm the guy that decided to do that, so I can't really complain that it's turned out exactly the way I asked for it. You know? I'm happy here. Yeah, well, likewise. When it comes to sound, it's all about your own way of hearing it. And what you hear depends a lot on what you've learned to listen to and on whether you really are even listening at all. One man's noise can be another man's music, it seems. The sounds of nature sound different depending on where you put your ears and where you put your mind. So maybe try to give your eyes a rest for a change and open your ears. Thank you so much. That was Soundtracks of Our Lives, produced by sound designer Tim Hinman for his podcast, Third Ear. Third Ear is available wherever you get your podcasts, but just a heads up, the show is almost exclusively in Danish. Bad news for us, great news for Danes. However, if you liked today's episode, you can hear more stories like it from Tim Hinman on the podcast Sound Matters, which is in English. You can hear the hoot of an owl. You're in the dark woods. Just get me into that beautiful darkness with the soft wind and I started playing. And they 
Angelo, that's great. I love that. That's a good mood. Just keep it going slow like that. Just keep that going for a while. Then he would say, okay, Angelo, now we got to make a change because from behind a tree in the back of the woods, there's this very lonely girl. Her name is Laura Palmer. And it's very sad, but get something that matches her. And, and, and I just segued into this. Before we go, we wanted to share a little behind-the-scenes taste of how Tim Hinman does what he does. In 2016, he came to the Third Coast Conference to talk to a room full of audio producers about designing sound for audio stories. Here's an excerpt from his session called Blockbuster Sound. I said I was going to break down what we mean by sound. So, I mean, the basic building blocks that you think you're working with, I think, when you make radio especially, are... Voice, sounds, and music. And the three basic methods are, you know, recording stuff or collecting stuff, editing stuff, and mixing stuff. But I think that's one of the main problems that people have, actually, is that they assume it is that simple. Uh, What do we mean when we talk about voice? Well, the voice can be a million different things. Uh, there's, it can be voices in any frame. It can be different forms of communication. It can be different forms of intonation. It can be people shouting. It can be people whispering. It can be voices on TV, on radio, voices from all over the place. You have a million, infinite number of possible types of voice that you can use to tell your story. 
So, thing two, sounds. What are we talking about with sounds? Well, it's everything that isn't vocals or isn't music, somewhere in between. So you've got background sounds, sound effects, non-verbal stuff. You've got artificial sounds, textures, weirdness, and you know, anything, anything that you can imagine that you can possibly hear is there, and, and in different perspectives as well, and I'll get to that. Likewise with music. Music can exist on so many levels. Music in the background, it could be scored music, it could be music that just happens to be in the room when somebody's there. It can be used in millions of different ways. Uh, and it's, it's just trying to think about things a bit more openly. So think about your microphone as a camera. What would you do with a camera if you were making a story, and what would you do with a microphone? So it can do close-ups. It can do super close-ups, ultra close-ups. Uh, it can do wide shots, it can, do, it can move around, uh, it can do all sorts of stuff, depending on where you stick it. It's up to you. That was an excerpt from the 2016 Third Coast Conference session, Blockbuster Sound, presented by Tim Hinman. You can hear the rest of that session or scores of others on the Third Coast Pocket Conference, our podcast where you can learn from the world's best producers what it takes to make a great radio story. Subscribe to the Third Coast Pocket Conference wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Isabel Vasquez is our production assistant. Music featured on ReSound is provided by Patient Sounds, a private press record label and book publisher based in Chicago. You can find a track list for this episode along with links to songs from the Patient Sounds catalog at thirdcoastfestival.org. While on our website, you can re-listen to today's program, check out more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world, and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. All diamonds, no rough. <laughs>